Welcome to the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. Today, Associate Editor Professor Robert Brownstone and authors Dr. Lee Miller and Chris Versty will be discussing the article titled Encoding of Limb State by Single Neurons in a Cuneate Nucleus of Awake Monkeys. So let's get started. Hi, Rob. Hi, thank you. Chris, Lee, it's great to have you here today and thank you uh, for um, submitting and choosing us as your uh, journal to publish this great work. I thought uh, we would get right into it and talk a little bit about this uh, paper. Absolutely, so, Robert, that's great. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, great to see you both. Well, I guess, or to hear you both. So I thought we, we'd start off, uh, Chris and Lee, just by uh, a general overview and telling us what is proprioception? Why do we have to understand proprioception? And why does the, care, why does the brain care about proprioception? Yeah, so yeah, that's the where I like to start off the story is, is what is proprioception? Because not many, or in the general population, not many people know what the sense is and why it's important. So proprioception is essentially your ability to know where your, your where your body is in space without being able to see it. So if you ever close your eyes and, and reach out and grab a, a cup off your desk. Um, that is due to the feedback you're getting from the proprioceptive sense. And so proprioception begins in your muscles and it travels up, joint, enters your spinal cord and synapses for the first time in the region that I am studying called the cuneate nucleus, at which point it goes to the thalamus and at which point it travels to the somatosensory cortices, which is what we think of as sort of the higher co cognitive areas of the brain. Let me, let me add just a little tiny bit to that as well. There, there are all kinds of redundancies within the sensory motor systems of the brain that are fascinating. And one of them is that we have a combination of motor intent that tells us you know, where our limbs ought to be going. We have vision, which is what people mostly think about in terms of watching where their arms are going. And we also have proprioception. It turns out Proprioception among those three is really critical. And if it's lost, there are big deficits in our ability to move normally, even in so the presence of the other two. And we have lots of different proprioceptors. Uh, we, you know, within our muscles, we have uh, uh, different types of primary afferents. We have joint receptors. Do these all project to the cuneate nucleus? Yes, uh, all, all of these these somatosensory receptors, and also tactile information, cutaneous information from the skin, all travel and uh, synapse many of them for the first time in the cuneate nucleus in the brainstem. Uh, so the cuneate nucleus is, I've sort of presented it as the proprioceptive nucleus, but it's, it's more than that. It's not just the sense of proprioception. It's also uh, contact information about your hand and, and then also things like loads in your joints and things like that. Yeah, just one so, comment that's relevant here in this respect. Uh, this work came from a grant that I got with a colleague at the University of Chicago, Simon Benzaya. And we've essentially divided up the attack of the proprioceptive part of the system, which we are doing here, and the, the tactile part, which he's doing down at the University of Chicago. Great. And so what can we learn from studying the QD8 nucleus then? So... Uh, the cuneate nucleus being the first synapse, for, specifically for proprioception, is the first synapse in the brain of where you have the chance to sort of take these proprioceptive signals and mix them, perhaps, in, in, perhaps in interesting ways that might be useful for the brain to use to control feedback. 
It's also a, a location that receives substantial descending inputs from the cortex that can modulate what sorts of information might, you might wanna turn up volume on certain types of information and turn down the volume on different types of information. And so that's one of the things that we were interested in QNIT about uh, determining how exactly QNIT might serve as a modulatory area that calls attention to relevant inputs while well, allowing you to uh, ignore irrelevant inputs. Uh, so tell us, Chris, Lee, what did you do? How did you study the cuneate nucleus? Uh, so that's a great question. So the cuneate nucleus, one of the reasons uh, it's very difficult to get signals from the cuneate is because it's right at the base of the brain. It is the, the closest part of the brain with spinal cord. And so if you were to try to get recordings from it, from the top of the head, you have to go through a lot of the brain. And if you try to, essentially it's a very difficult area to get to in the brain. And so we actually collaborated with the Director of Functional Neurosurgery at Northwestern University to, to get, help us get access to this area in rhesus macaques. So because we wanted to record from signals from the cuneate from a, from a long period of time, and we wanted to, as many, to record from as many single neurons as we possibly could, uh, in our collaboration with Dr. Rosenau, we implanted chronic recording electrodes, Utah rays, which are standard multi-electrode recordings, uh, into the cuneate nucleus of monkeys um, that we had trained to perform sort of standard 2D reaching tasks holding onto a robot, a, a robotic manipulator. And so by, by recording from these single cuneate neurons, while the monkey is, is making these active movements, and also while we're applying passive perturbations to the monkey's hand, we can quantify how single neurons in the cuneate nucleus encode these proprioceptive signals, signals about the state of the arm as he's making movements. Just a little more background, I'll add uh, here in the history of this project, which, which actually began before Chris showed up in the lab and really, really ran with it. Uh, I did a series of acute experiments with, I think, three different monkeys with Stuart Baker, who is currently a professor at, at uh, Newcastle. He's been in Newcastle for, for some time, actually. And we got a lot of interesting data from those, but of course, the monkey was anesthetized and, and we couldn't look at some of these questions of modulation by descending circuits. Um, I, I can tell you a further attempt that we made that, that failed to investigate that, if, if you're curious, Rob. But uh, at the conclusion of those experiments, I contacted Josh Rosenau, the, the functional neurosurgeon, for some reason, I can't remember quite what the context was, and told him about these experiments and, and sort of moaned that Stuart was a great surgeon and got us into the brainstem, but you know, there's just no way we could get back out and close it all up successfully and have the monkey recover well. And, and Josh said, no, no, we go into the posterior fossa all the time in kids to resect tumors and I'm not sure what all they do. And so that, that was the, the beginning of this project with Josh and Sleeman at U of C, which took some further development, technical development to make it work, but ultimately uh, has been quite successful. Always key to get a brain surgeon involved. I Absolutely. <laughs> Especially okay. when he's volunteering his time. Yeah, exactly. So. So tell me, so, so you implanted these uh, Utah rays. How many neurons would you record at a time? So depending on the array and the monkey, we would record anywhere. 
anywhere from between around 20 neurons to around 100 neurons, though not all of those were in the cuneate nucleus proper. Um, some of them were from an adjacent area known as the gracile nucleus, which receives inputs from the lower limb, leg, the leg, essentially. Um, so the useful signals that we recorded for a monkey typically range from around 20 neurons to around 50 neurons. Useful and you, from cuneate yeah. and well recorded. Right, right. And you would record those over what period of time? Um, so for a single recording session, we would typically record for one or two hours. Uh, but across days, I found single neurons in cuneate that lasted on those arrays for upwards of a month sometimes, um, a, a single neuron that I could track across days for upwards of a month. And how long did the recordings themselves last? Oh, uh, the recording, the array themselves varied again from, from monkey to monkey, but they lasted anywhere from three months to over a year. So, so the recording quality was quite good. So you had a huge amount of data here to analyze. Yes. And tell us what you found. So, uh, what I found was that when I asked the monkey to make these 2D planar reaching, um, one, one hypothesis that exists in, about what cuneate might do is it might act to suppress somatosensory, expected somatosensory input that travels through the cuneate. So if you make a reach and everything goes according to plan, or, or if you make a reach, you might want to turn down the gain of the sensory signal while you're making that reach to not disrupt the activity of the motor cortex or, or, or something of that nature. And so what I found was instead, proprioceptive cuneate neurons have, are very robustly active during actively generated reaches. And actually, when I compared the response, that how sensitive they were in the active case to when I applied similar kinematic perturbations to the monkey's hand passively, so I'm, I'm bumping the handle, the active uh, encoding is actually somewhat more sensitive on average uh, it, for proprioceptive neurons in cuneate relative to the passive case. So that means it, it seems that instead of what you what previously you thought might have been might have been happening, which is turning the volume down on these proprioceptive signals, what instead seems to be happening is, is that for many of these proprioceptive neurons, the volume is turned up. Um, potentially to improve the perception of the movement as the monkey's making the reach. And to make sure it's clear, the expectation of a reduced gain comes from many years of well-established observations that the tactile system does, in fact, have its gain turned down for the most part during reaching movements. And this comes from human experiments with sensory potentials as well as, as animal experiments. So the observation of an increase in gain runs counter to that kind of an expectation. And, and Chris also found the system really is more complicated than just an increase in gain. Although most of the neurons did have their gains increased, a significant number had gains that were reduced in a pattern that seemed to be quite consistent over repeated trials. So it does seem as though there's some sort of careful modulation of the gains of different, different neurons in the nucleus. Okay, well, I mean, there's so much to talk about here, but, but uh, firstly, tell us that these neurons that you identified, you identified them as, be, as having proprioceptive inputs. Um, tell us how specific those inputs were. Did they respond to a certain joint, a certain muscle? But what do you know about them? That's a, the, one of the important questions that I set out to answer in this was, 
um, QNU neurons, because they're past one synapse, there's the potential for signals from multiple muscles to be converged onto single neurons. So for instance, you might maybe think that you might have receptors from both your biceps and your triceps muscles going to a single QNU. And so what I found when I did these sensory mappings on these QNU neurons is that does not seem to be the case. The encoding of proprioception at the level of the QNU seems for the most part to be restricted to representing a single muscle. I did occasionally find QNU neurons that rep represented more than a single muscle, but they were typically adjacent synergist muscles that, that behaved similarly, similarly when the monkey was making so you would, you would identify them based on passive movements, right? So, and then study them during the active movement. Is that right? So I, I identified them in, in, a, in a couple different ways. Um, first, as you said, by passively flexing and extending the joints of the monkey and then muscle spindles, which is the, the acronym I'm most interested in, fire preferentially when the muscle is lengthened. So by, by passively manipulating the muscle, the, the joints, I can look for what muscle lengthening causes the cumulant neuron to fire, but also it's a well-described property of muscle spindles. They're highly sensitive to the vibration applied to the muscle. So it's an interesting experiment that, that the listeners can try at home. If you take a hundred Hertz vibrator and you apply it to a muscle belly, you can actually generate illusory movements of your arm and by illusory movements of our arm, you, you perceive as though the muscle that you're vibrating is lengthened, such that you can produce movements that, that aren't actually happening, or perceived movements that are not actually happening. And so I use these vibra this vibration technique in addition to this passive manipulation of the joints. Um, and I was actually able to record increases in firing rate of cuneate neurons as I applied vibrators to the muscle bellies of the muscles that I had mapped to project to those cuneate neurons. Uh, and the recruitment of these cuneate neurons is, is highly temporally precise, such that I was actually able to make the firing rate of the cuneate neuron phase lock with the, the vibration I was applying to the muscle. Okay, so those are group 1A afferents, really, that you're stimulating with vibration. What about uh, other spindle afferents or 1B afferents? That, yeah, that's a great question. I also recorded some neurons in cuneate which were not responsive to vibration, uh, but were tonically. So for the listeners, a 1A afferents are thought to respond primarily to the, the lengthening velocity of the muscle. And type 2s are primarily the tonic length of the muscle. They don't have much of a velocity signal. Um, so I was able to find some neurons in cuneate less frequently than the 1As, but neurons that had tonic responsiveness, but not dynamic responsiveness. And they were not responsive to the vibration, which is what I would expect from a type 2. So unfortunately, because I couldn't vibrate them, I didn't have like the, the smoking gun that I had with the 1As, but they, the, the response properties behave as I would expect type 2 act. So yeah, to answer your question, we, we, I had a wide variety of, of different sorts of responses in CUNIA for which I could map the 1As most specifically. You skirted and the question 1Bs. Can you say one B's? Yeah. <laughs> that? 1Bs, yeah. I was just going to reinforce that question. <laughs> yeah. So 1Bs, Golgi tendon organs, 
Unfortunately, because Golgi tendon organs are, are thought to respond primarily to the active tension generation of a muscle, mind passive manipulations are unable to do those sorts of methods. There were some neurons in Cunian which only responded to actively generated movements and had, had very weak or non-existent responses to passively generated movements, which suggests that these neurons might be receiving Golgi tendon organ inputs. There are ways in which you can artificially activate Golgi tendon organs through very, very brief pulses of electrical stimulation to the muscle. Unfortunately, because of the population of putative Golgi tendon organ neurons I was recording in Cunit was very small and the total space of muscles is very large, we weren't able to actually evoke any presumptive GTO inputs from muscle stimulation, but that we did attempt that. I should give a shout out to one other person here as well, Richard Nichols at uh, Georgia Tech was instrumental in sort of helping us with these diagnostic criteria for identifying the different efforts. And, and he's been involved in uh, actually formally as a consultant for this project as well. Excellent, you couldn't find anybody better for that. All right, so to recap that, that bit, you have cells in the cuneate nucleus that are incredibly specific, not only to the muscle uh, from which their signals derive, but also from the type of receptors in those muscles. Is that right? Yeah, that that's, seems that's to be the case. It, it, so the word used in the field, in the anesthetized literature is, is a relay. And that does seem to be at least somewhat true. It, they're transmitting these signals from the peripheral receptors with a high degree of temporal fidelity to central structures that, that process this information. Okay, so now if we bring in the descending control of these neurons and the fact that they are somewhat dampened in their firing, or, or many of them are somewhat dampened in their firing during active movements, is there a propensity for the brain to control certain specific subtypes, either subtypes from particular muscles or subtypes from particular receptors? Yeah, so the first way we split that question was via the, just the gross modality. Are these neurons proprioceptive uh, or do they receive inputs from proprioceptive receptors, muscle spindles, Golgi tendon organs, or do they receive inputs from cutaneous neurons or, or skin receptors? And we found potentiation for these proprioceptive cuneate neurons, but in sort of contrast with our expectations, we found some cutaneous neurons that were potentiated, uh, more that were attenuated, but there wasn't a really a statistically significant difference between the level of potentiation and attenuation in cutaneous receptors. So essentially to, to recap, proprioceptive neurons on the whole seem to be potentiated, but it's a more mixed effect for cutaneous neurons in our experiment. And I don't think we can say that we understood why particular neurons, proprioceptive neurons, for example, went up and others went down. Uh, there's, there is presumably some systematic reason why some are going up and some are going down, but it, it so far has eluded us. So one interesting hypothesis to answer this question, though uh, further work would need to be done to, to figure out exactly if this is the case, is that it, it turns out reflex activity is, is highly context-dependent and, and can do a lot of things, even in the spinal cord, reflexes can be somewhat intelligent as to the context of the task and 
what the goals of a given movement are. So one reason why you might turn up the gain on some receptors and turn down the gain on the other, on some others, is to dynamically modulate these feedback loops such that it, it will help generate a movement that has the desired kinematics and also if you were to bump the arm in one direction, be able to produce appropriate reflexive responses. Okay, let's explore this for a second. This is really, this is really quite cool. So, uh, I mean, classic, what, what we've learned from control theorists over time is that your brain predicts the sensory consequences of a movement, and then you ignore those sensory consequences and you only listen to unexpected sensory inputs, essentially. And that would mean that you have neurons that calculate a sensory prediction error by comparing the two. And yet the neurons that you are talking about are potentiating their response rather than reducing their response. So how do you put that all together? So very carefully, very carefully. So, so it's interesting that the cuneate nucleus also has a neighbor called the external cuneate nucleus that projects to the cerebellum. And so uh, work in the oculomotor system, primarily looking at the cerebellum, has shown that the, the forward model that, that the control theorists predict might, might reside there rather than at the level of the cuneate. So it's an interesting question as to if you're changing the sensory gain in the cuneate, uh, some of which is projecting the cerebellum, well, the cerebellum also has to be able to know how the sensory gain is changing across context as well. So I, I think my opinion is that there's good evidence that the sorts of sensory cancellation that you're talking about happens in the cerebellum and cuneate gain modulation might be more to do with increasing the perceptual salience of, of signals that might be useful to ongoing control. Okay, <laughs> interesting. So, so just to explore that just a little bit further. So these, um, these monkeys, you trained before you implanted them. Is that right? So in a thought experiment, if you had done these recordings while a monkey was learning the new motor task, what do you suppose would have been the difference in the data that you collected? Would there have been any or is it all the same? That's a really interesting question. Um, I don't think there would be a, a large difference between the due to the learn. Um, but he's going to go off and think about that. I'm going to think about it for a little <laughs> while. That's a great question. Uh, so I think that that the output of the cerebellum would certainly change as as a monkey learns to predict the consequences of of a motor output. Um, but at the level of the cuneate, because we don't. There's a, many reasons why you might want to change the gain of the proprioceptive inputs. And so it's unclear to me which direction you might expect the gain to change as you're learning the task. I'm going to go out on a limb in the absence of any evidence whatsoever. And say, yeah. if, I had, if you forced me to bet, Rob, I would bet that the gain would go up because we know somatosensory input is critically important for learning, motor, motor learning. And it just wouldn't make any sense to turn it down. It might stay the same, might, might very well stay the same, but I'm gonna, to make, make things interesting, I'm gonna bet it would go up. Um, I wouldn't bet against you, Lee. I would, I would completely agree. That would make no <laughs> sense to me. <laughs> but I mean, you, you raise a very interesting 
question, not just about learning, but about a, a more natural range of tasks as well. All of us who do these kinds of experiments must essentially train our monkeys ahead of time because these implants have a limited lifespan and we need to have the monkey do the, the interesting kind of behaviors that we'd like to study uh, you know, when the, the implants are working. But in the last few years, we've begun recording wirelessly from monkeys in a large plexiglass or perspex cage. Uh, but this has been only in the motor studies within my lab. But putting a monkey uh, either with uh, some sensory cortical recordings or it in that same kind of cage and trying to do these sorts of experiments would really be very interesting. Not only to pursue the learning question, but to pursue the, a whole much broader range of different sorts of motor sensory motor contexts that might well modulate the, the gains of these neurons differently. I would also be remiss if I didn't if I didn't point out that the gain modulatory effects are happen at many points along the ascending neuraxis. So muscle spindles, for those who don't know, receive descending gamma drive, which dynamically modulates its sensitivity as well. So, so unfortunately, at, at my in my experiment, I can't disentangle the relative contributions of direct projections to cuneant versus uh, gain that is already at the input from the muscle spindles themselves. Um, but I can say that to your question, muscle spindle sensitive, sensory gain changes as a function of context as well. So if in human muscle spindles, if, if they move your finger or I think your toe around to draw a character, um, if they ask you to report the character that they drew, the muscle spindle sensitivity is higher in that condition than in the condition where you're just moving the moving the leg around passively without asking the person to report. So the, the, the proprioceptive system has a, a lot of mechanisms and a lot of contexts in which it can change its sensitivity to, to do these sorts of functional tasks. Okay, can I just go back briefly to the fact, uh, Lee, that you pointed out, yes, you because of the limited lifespan of these devices, you train the monkey and then you implant them. You have a beautiful figure in the paper that shows uh, leg responses versus arm responses. So you can uh, electrophysiologically see the difference between gracilis and cuneatus uh, side by side. You, you have them color coded and it's, it's really quite nice. So you in fact had at the same time a trained limb and an untrained limb. Did you ever look at responses in gracilis in the untrained limb? when they were doing something. I mean, with the, with the animals, you, you know, just getting restless and moving their legs around and, and could you tell anything from those recordings? So we never looked specifically at gracile um, except to do sensory mappings on them. That is an interesting question. One thing I wish I had done is because I had a limited amount of time to do sensory mappings, um, I essentially isolated something as being a leg and then I moved on. But it's an interesting question to, to what extent proprioception actually exists in the gracile of a monkey. Um, in, in cats, almost all proprioception actually synapses in, in Clark's column. And then essentially the gracile itself doesn't actually even have many proprioceptive signals. So it would, be, it would have been interesting to, to map the proprioception of the leg, but unfortunately I, I did not do that. In addition to potential species different confounds, which is an important consideration here. We're also bumping up against a couple of additional technical limitations. And that is, um, you know, we talked about 
experimenters like us and training their monkeys for months before the experiments, what they're doing is training them to make a highly constrained movement, often holding onto a manipulandum, so that they can monitor the movement. We didn't have a good means of monitoring leg motion in a quantitative way. Plus the monkey's sitting in what we call a primate chair, which is more or less like a chair we would sit in. So his legs were more confined than his arm was. So uh, your question is, is interesting. We really didn't have the means to do a very good job of it. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so speaking about monkeys then, was that the necessary species to do these experiments in? Could you have done them in rodents, for example? Uh, so I think in addition to the anatomical differences that we've sort of alluded to in, uh, already, I think that for the sorts of questions about what is proprioception doing, I, I really think that monkeys are the, the best model systems to sort of test these reaching sorts of thing, ideas. Um, you can train mice to, to grab onto a handle and do very basic sorts of pushing sorts of tasks or ask them to bring a pellet to their mouth. But the, the monkey and human arms are, are somewhat, uh, are much more similar in, their, in the ways that they might use the proprioceptive information. So if, if the end goal of understanding the proprioceptive system might be at the end goal to deliver artificial stimuli such that someone can control a prosthesis, um, understanding how the proprioception is processed in the monkey is really the best stepping stone to that eventually. And I would say they're by no means mutually exclusive. They are, they are in my lab because I don't have means to study mice, but there are very important studies that are being done in mice. Obviously, there are tools available in mice that we can't begin to do in monkeys. So I think it's important to have both models available. So, so specifically, I mean, Azim's work um, has actually, through optogenetics, been able to start disentangling the circuit mechanisms that might explain the sort of phenomenological uh, discoveries that I'm making in monkeys, but much more causally by, by optogenetic stimulation. Okay, so one of the things that we uh, all think about these days when in science in general is rigor and reproducibility. And in that, you know, we think about uh, our ends and what is our experimental unit. By definition, your experimental unit when you're using monkeys is a lot different than our experimental unit if we are using mice. You know, we always talk about is it is it the cell we're recording? Is it the mouse? Is it the litter? Is it the parents? You know, what, what is it? Mm -hmm. How do you think about that in these um, non-human primate experiments? So uh, that's a really interesting interesting question that the field is sort of is sort of reckoning with now. I think there was there was a thread on Twitter the other day where people were talking about. What sorts of inference can you draw uh, from two monkeys or three monkeys? And the, the answer is you probably can't make statements about populations with, with certainty from these low-end studies. But populations they, of monkeys. Populations of monkeys, yes. But you can, you can make statements about how particular monkeys process proprioceptive information. So obviously for, for financial, financial and, and ethical reasons. You want to minimize the amount of, uh, of monkeys in this research. So small n is sort of a, a necessary um, constraint of this sort of research. And I, I clarified the use of the word populations because populations has become a very popular term with respect to populations of neurons, uh, which we can now study very effectively using these chronically implanted electrode arrays. And so we can 
say things about the way in which these neurons interact in a circuit kind of manner um, in ways that we couldn't too many years ago. And to a certain extent, these become existence proofs of the way in which the brain might go about solving certain sets of problems. So whether it's CUNIT that uh, Chris has been looking at or um, many more groups asking these kinds of questions in cortical circuitry, I think it's really very important to get these kinds of data from small numbers of monkeys and begin to model the system and understand how it might work. Clearly, it will have differences across individuals that we also need to understand, but that's perhaps a second order problem. Are you able to look at the differences between animals? Are you able to say these monkey? animals? Uh, when you have three monkeys, can you reasonably tell that, hey, this is quite different from monkey A to B to C, so maybe we should pay less attention to that. But hey, look, this is exactly the same in all three. This has got to be a really important phenomenon. <laughs> I'm going to make two, two comments. Uh, we just implanted the other side of a, of a monkey hand M1 monkey. And this is one of the monkeys we've been studying unconstrained movements in the cage with. And we've gotten some fascinating results from the left side of the brain, right hand from this monkey. And uh, we've been looking desperately for our second monkey. And for a variety of reasons, we're not able to get him very quickly. So we ended up implanting the other side of this same monkey's brain, really nice implant brain, and we're looking at EMGs as well. Completely different results <laughs> on the two sides of the monkey's brain. So, you know, we don't know if it's something about the quality implant, the monkey's behavior, what it is, but it was different. The other, the other anecdote, I'll just outline very briefly in case you want to go there. Um, Chris has already alluded to making brain-machine interfaces and supplying the somatosensation. I've had for a bunch of years a parallel project in my lab to stimulate area two of the somatosensory cortex and try to evoke a predictable sensation of limb movement. It worked great in one monkey, and we could not replicate it in subsequent monkeys, three monkeys, for reasons we don't understand. So this is something we're trying to pursue and understand because it's, it's critically important, both from a scientific perspective, but also the neural engineering. We, we are on the same page. It's a really hard problem to, 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 to generalize results from small and to a population which might be highly variable. Okay, so this has been a very interesting discussion. I have a, a couple more questions and then we will wrap things up. First, Lee, you alluded to very early on in this discussion to the failures that you had in part with Stewart and Newcastle and, and, uh, and in general. How much do the failures feed into what you end up doing? How important are the failures? I'm going to take a brief segue here. My hero growing up was Thomas Edison. I'm, I don't know if I can get this quote correct or not, but I think it was when he was working on the storage battery or something. He had, he had literally failed thousands of times. And someone came up and asked him, you know, you must be so terribly upset that, you know, you've done all this work and you learned nothing. And he said, no, I know a thousand things that don't work. I think I actually have a quote on my door. That's tremendously important. And I think it also feeds into the, the question of rigor and reproducibility. If we only report those studies that are successful, we are not going to be learning, you know, maybe 99% of the important stuff we need to be paying attention to. So that's sort of a, uh, a high level overarching perspective on this problem. We're, we're specifically with respect to 
this project, I, I, I shouldn't have given the impression that the work with Stuart had, had uh, you know, lots of failures. It had limitations because the monkey was anesthetized. Oh, I, I did refer to one, didn't I? So uh, Stuart, in fact, had the great idea to put lidocaine on the surface of the somatosensory cortex to uh, interrupt the descending input. And, you know, we were all set up. We, we did that. Unfortunately, we didn't think about the fact that the anesthesia had already shut the brain off, the cortex off. So the additional local anesthesia on the on the surface of the cortex didn't change anything. Uh, but that so that was an attempt to get at the kind of questions that Chris was able to do later with an awake monkey. We also specifically with respect to we we went through a series of different types of electrodes that we used, different types of different means of trying to adhere those electrodes to the brainstem, and progressively got better and better at the surgical access. I'm going to rephrase the question and pose it to Chris this time. Right. Chris, <laughs> as, as an early career researcher, the failures can be much more frustrating than they are to us uh, gray-haired, seasoned uh, scientists. But what, what did the failures mean to you? Certainly, you came across lots of failures during this. Well, I, I became slightly more gray-haired as the first thing. And then, um, essentially, it, it's really having a project, doing something that nobody's ever done before is a really good training opportunity to, to really learn not any specific not necessarily any specific technique because you're coming up with the techniques yourself but just the resilience to say okay well that didn't work what did i learn and, and then move forward with that it's it's a really it was a useful challenge for me and i'm, I'm hoping to to have slightly the ratio of success to failure improving it over the course of my career. Uh, Rob, you raise a, a tremendously important point. As a principal investigator of a lab and a mentor to a number of people, I do have the luxury of having experiments that fail. I can move on, I've got stuff in parallel and so forth. It's really important not to have somebody like Chris have their whole experiment fail. So I always try to have have them doing a number of things in parallel to sort of mitigate the risk of it, uh, but it's yeah, it's a it's an important issue. It's a tough balance, that's for sure. Okay, and my and my last question, and either one of you or both of you can answer this, is just in general your whole publishing experience with the Journal of Neurophysiology. How how was it? How was the review process? I mean, I think many of us find publishing papers getting tougher and tougher as the years go on. Uh, how was your experience with us, and is there anything we can do better? Uh, I'd say that my, my experience was, was great. We, we chose the journal Neurophysiology because when you read a, a J Neurophys paper, at least when I do, I, I, I know that it's, it's well-reviewed, and it says what it, what it says on the cover, and you can read in the details, and it's, it's always as what's on the sticker is what you get. And so um, the reviewers were, were, were reasonable about the limitations of what we could do given our, our model. And uh, overall, I, I'd say our, my experience publishing neurophysiology was very good. And I have been a fan of JNP for many years. Uh, so, you know, more power to you guys. And in the, in the last decade, you guys have been directly associated with the Neural Control and Movement Society as well in a way that's been I hope useful to you. It's certainly useful to us. Um, so that that's been a great experience. Uh, the only the one one comment I would make, and this is not specific to JMP at all, but one of the frustrations uh, when when we as researchers and authors get reviews back is sometimes they're a little ambiguous, a little hard to figure out. 
And, you know, we probably waited a month or two to get the reviews. We'll sit and stew over them for another month or two. It would be really easy if we could short circuit those, those ambiguous things easily by just, you know, sending an email to Rob and saying, could you get the reviewer to clarify this thing for us? I, there are difficulties in, in doing that sort of thing, but uh, the more that we can move in that direction to, um, to be able to get these kinds yep. of clarifications quickly, the better. Perfect. Excellent. And do you guys have any last comments you'd like to make? I don't think so. Thank this you very much. Have fun. Yeah. Thank okay, you very much for having us. Uh, thank you for joining us. That's, that's been terrific. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.